Chapter Fifteen, Section Seven of Capital, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Capital: A Critical Analysis of Capitalist Production, Volume One, by Karl Marx, translated from the Third German Edition by Samuel Moore and Edward Aveling, and edited by Frederick Engels. Part Four. Production of Relative Surplus Value. Chapter 15. Machinery and Modern Industry. Section 7. Repulsion and Attraction of Workpeople by the Factory System. Crisis in the Cotton Trade. All political economists of any standing admit that the introduction of new machinery has a baneful effect on the workmen in the old handicrafts and manufacturers with which this machinery at first competes. Almost all of them bemoan the slavery of the factory operative, and what is the great trump card that they play? That machinery, after the horrors of the period of introduction and development have subsided, instead of diminishing in the long run, increases the number of slaves of labor. Yes, political economy revels in the hideous theory, hideous to every philanthropist who believes in the eternal nature-ordained necessity for capitalist production, that after a period of growth and transition, even its crowning success, the factory system based on machinery, grinds down more workpeople than on its first introduction it throws on the streets. Footnote. Ganil, on the contrary, considers the final result of the factory system to be an absolutely less number of operatives, at whose expense an increased number of gens honnêtes live and develop their well-known perfectibility perfectible. Little as he understands the movement of production, at least he feels that machinery must needs be a very fatal institution, if its introduction converts busy workmen into paupers, and its development calls more slaves of labor into existence than it has suppressed. It is not possible to bring out the cretinism of his standpoint, except by his own words. The classes condemned to produce and to consume diminish, and the classes which direct labor, which relieve, console, and enlighten the whole population, multiply, and appropriate all the benefits which can result from the diminution of the cost of labor, from the abundance of products and the cheapness of consumer goods. In this way the human species rises to the highest creations of genius, penetrates the mysterious depths of religion, and establishes the salutary principle of morality, the laws for the production of liberty and power, of obedience and justice, of obligation and humanity. For this twaddle see Des Systèmes d'Economie Politique par Monsieur Charles Ganil, Deuxième édition, Paris, 1821, page 224, and see page 212, end note. It is true that in some cases, as we saw from instances of English worsted and silk factories, an extraordinary extension of the factory system may, at a certain stage of its development, be accompanied not only by a relative, but by an absolute decrease in the number of operatives employed. In the year 1860, when a special census of all the factories of the United Kingdom was taken by order of Parliament, the factories in those parts of Lancashire, Cheshire, and Yorkshire, included in the district of Mr. Baker, the factory inspector, numbered 652. 570 of these contained 85,622 power looms, 6,819,146 spindles, exclusive of doubling spindles, employed 27,439 horsepower, steam, and 1,390 water, 
and 94,119 persons. In the year 1865, the same factories contained looms, 95,163, spindles, 7,025,031, had steam power of 28,925 horses, and a water power of 1,445 horses, and employed 88,913 persons. Between 1860 and 1865, therefore, the increase in looms was 11%, in spindles 3%, and in engine power 3%, while the number of persons employed decreased 5.5%. Footnote. Reports of the Inspectors of Factories, 31st October, 1865, page 58. At the same time, however, means of employment for an increased number of hands was ready in 110 new mills, with 11,625 looms, 628,576 spindles, and 2,695 total horsepower of steam and water. End note. Between 1852 and 1862, considerable extension of the English woolen manufacture took place, while the number of hands employed in it remained almost stationary, showing how greatly the introduction of new machines had superseded the labor of preceding periods. Footnote. Reports, etc., for 31st October, 1862, page 79. At the end of 1871, Mr. A. Redgrave, the factory inspector, in a lecture given at Bradford in the New Mechanics Institution, said, What has struck me for some time past is the altered appearance of the woolen factories. Formerly they were filled with women and children. Now machinery seems to do all the work. At my asking for an explanation of this from a manufacturer, he gave me the following. Under the old system I employed sixty-three persons. After the introduction of improved machinery, I reduced my hands to thirty-three, and lately, in consequence of new and extensive alterations, I have been in a position to reduce those thirty-three to thirteen. End note. In certain cases, the increase in the number of hands employed is only apparent. That is, it is not due to the extension of the factories already established, but to the gradual annexation of connected trades. For instance, the increase in power looms, and in the hands employed by them, between 1838 and 1856, was, in the cotton trade, simply owing to the extension of this branch of industry, but in the other trades to the application of steam power to the carpet loom, to the ribbon loom, and to the linen loom, which previously had been worked by the power of men. Footnote. See Reports, etc., 31st October, 1856, page 16. End note. Hence the increase of the hands in these latter trades was merely a symptom of a diminution in the total number employed. Finally, we have considered this question entirely apart from the fact that everywhere, except in the metal industries, young persons under eighteen, and women and children form the preponderating element in this class of factory hands. Nevertheless, in spite of the mass of hands actually displaced and virtually replaced by machinery, we can understand how the factory operatives, through the building of more mills and the extension of old ones in a given industry, may become more numerous than the manufacturing workmen and handicraftsmen that have been displaced. Suppose, for example, that in the old mode of production a capital of five hundred pounds is employed weekly, two-fifths being constant and three-fifths variable capital, i.e., two hundred pounds being laid out in means of production, and three pounds, say one pound per man, in labor power. On the introduction of machinery, the composition of this capital becomes altered. We will suppose it to consist of four-fifths constant and one-fifth variable, which means that only one hundred pounds is now laid out in labor power. Consequently, two-thirds of the workmen are discharged. 
If now the business extends, and the total capital employed grows to fifteen hundred pounds under unchanged conditions, the number of operatives employed will increase to three hundred, just as many as before the introduction of the machinery. If the capital further grows to two thousand pounds, four hundred men will be employed, or one-third more than under the old system. Their numbers have, in point of fact, increased by one hundred, but relatively, i.e., in proportion to the total capital advanced, they have diminished by eight hundred, for the two thousand pounds capital would, in the old state of things, have employed twelve hundred instead of four hundred men. Hence, a relative decrease in the number of hands is consistent with an actual increase. We assumed above that while the total capital increases, its composition remains the same, because the conditions of production remain constant. But we have already seen that, with every advance in the use of machinery, the constant component of capital, that part which consists of machinery, raw, material, and etc., increases, while the variable component, the part laid out in labor-power, decreases. We also know that in no other system of production is improvement so continuous, and the composition of the capital employed so constantly changing as in the factory system. These changes are, however, continually interrupted by periods of rest, during which there is a mere quantitative extension of the factories on the existing technical basis. During such periods the operatives increase in number. Thus, in 1835, the total number of operatives in the cotton, woolen, worsted, flax, and silk factories of the United Kingdom was only 354,684, while in 1861 the number of the power-loom weavers alone, of both sexes and of all ages, from eight years upwards, amounted to 230,654. Certainly, this growth appears less important when we consider that in 1838 the hand-loom weavers, with their families, still numbered 800,000, not to mention those thrown out of work in Asia and on the continent of Europe. The sufferings of the hand-loom weavers were the object of an inquiry by a royal commission, but although their distress was acknowledged and lamented, the amelioration of their condition was left, and probably necessarily so, to the chances and changes of time, which, it may now be hoped, twenty years later, have nearly obliterated these miseries, and not improbably by the present great extension of the power-loom. Report of the Inspector of Factories, 31st October, 1856, page 15. End In the few remarks I have still to make on this point, I shall refer to some actually existing relations, the existence of which our theoretical investigation has not yet disclosed. So long as, in a given branch of industry, the factory system extends itself at the expense of the old handicrafts or of manufacture, the result is as sure as the result of an encounter between an army furnished with bread-loaders and one armed with bows and arrows. This first period, during which machinery conquers its field of action, is of decisive importance, owing to the extraordinary profits that it helps to produce. These profits not only form a source of accelerated accumulation, but also attract into the favored sphere of production a large part of the additional social capital that is being constantly created, and is ever on the lookout for new investments. The special advantages of this first period of fast and furious activity are felt in every branch of production that machinery invades. So soon, however, as the factory system has gained a certain breadth of footing and a definite degree of maturity, and especially so soon as its technical basis, machinery, is itself produced by machinery, so soon as coal-mining and iron-mining, the metal industries, and the means of transport have been revolutionized, 
So soon, in short, as the general conditions requisite for production by the modern industrial system have been established, this mode of production acquires an elasticity, a capacity for sudden extension by leaps and bounds that finds no hindrance, except in the supply of raw material and in the disposal of the produce. On the one hand, the immediate effect of machinery is to increase the supply of raw material in the same way, for example, as the cotton gin augmented the production of cotton. Footnote. Other ways in which machinery affects the production of raw material will be mentioned in the third book. End note. On the other hand, the cheapness of the articles produced by machinery, and the improved means of transport and communication, furnish the weapons for conquering foreign markets. By ruining handicraft production in other countries, machinery forcibly converts them into fields for the supply of its raw material. In this way, East India was compelled to produce cotton, wool, hemp, jute, and indigo for Great Britain. Footnote. The export of cotton from India to Great Britain rose from 34,540,143 pounds in 1846 to 445,947,600 pounds in 1865. The export of wool from India to Great Britain rose from 4,570,581 pounds in 1846 to 20,679,111 pounds in 1865. By constantly making a part of the hands supernumerary in modern industry, in all countries where it has taken root, gives a spur to emigration and to the colonization of foreign lands, which are thereby converted into settlements for growing the raw material of the mother country, just as Australia, for example, was converted into a colony for growing wool. Footnote. The export of wool from the Cape to Great Britain increased from 2,958,457 pounds in 1846 to 29,920,623 pounds in 1865. The export of wool from Australia to Great Britain increased from 21,789,346 pounds in 1846 to 109,734,260 pounds in 1865. End note. A new and international division of labor, a division suited to the requirements of the chief centers of modern industry, springs up, and converts one part of the globe into a chiefly agricultural field of production, for supplying the other part, which remains a chiefly industrial field. This revolution hangs together with radical changes in agriculture, which we need not here further inquire into. Footnote. The economic development of the United States is itself a product of European, more specifically of English modern industry. In their present form, 1866, the states must still be considered a European colony. Added in the fourth German edition, since they have developed into a country whose industry holds second place in the world, without, on that account, entirely losing their colonial character. Friedrich Engels The export of cotton from the United States to Great Britain increased from 401,949,393 pounds in 1846 to one billion one hundred fifteen million eight hundred ninety thousand six hundred and eight pounds in eighteen sixty. The total export of corn, wheat, barley, oats, rye, flour, buckwheat, maize, bear or big, peas and beans, 
was seventy four million eighty three thousand four hundred forty one quarter weights. End note. On the motion of Mr. Gladstone, the House of Commons ordered, on the 17th February, 1867, a return of the total quantities of grain, corn, and flour, of all sorts, imported into and exported from the United Kingdom, between the years 1831 and 1866. I give below a summary of the result. See the table on page 42.6. All imports of raw material increased dramatically. The enormous power, inherent in the factory system, of expanding by jumps, and the dependence of that system on the markets of the world, necessarily beget feverish production, followed by overfilling of the markets, whereupon contraction of the markets brings on crippling of production. The life of modern industry becomes a series of periods of moderate activity, prosperity, overproduction, crisis, and stagnation. The uncertainty and instability to which machinery subjects the employment, and consequently the conditions of existence, of the operatives become normal, owing to those periodic changes of the industrial cycle. Except in the periods of prosperity, there rages between the capitalists the most furious combat for the share of each in the markets. This share is directly proportional to the cheapness of the product. Besides the rivalry that this struggle begets in the application of improved machinery for replacing labor-power, and of new methods of production, there also comes a time in every industrial cycle when a forcible reduction of wages beneath the value of labor-power is attempted for the purpose of cheapening commodities. Footnote. In an appeal made in July 1866 to the trade societies of England by the shoemakers of Leicester, who had been thrown on the streets by a lockout, it is stated, Twenty years ago the Leicester shoe-trade was revolutionized by the introduction of riveting in the place of stitching. At that time good wages could be earned. Great competition was shown between the different firms as to which could turn out the neatest article. Shortly afterwards, however, a worse kind of competition sprang up, namely that of underselling one another in the market. The injurious consequences soon manifested themselves in reductions of wages, and so sweepingly quick was the fall in the price of labor that many firms now pay only one-half of the original wages. And yet, though wages sink lower and lower, profits appear, with each alteration in the scale of wages, to increase. Even bad times are utilized by the manufacturers for making exceptional profits by excessive lowering of wages, i.e., by a direct robbery of the laborer's means of subsistence. One example, it has reference to the crisis on the Coventry silk-weaving, from information I have received from manufacturers as well as workmen, there seems to be no doubt that wages have been reduced to a greater extent than either the competition of the foreign producers or other circumstances have rendered necessary. The majority of weavers are now working at a reduction of thirty to forty per cent in their wages. A piece of ribbon, for making which the weaver got six shillings or seven shillings five years back, now only brings them three shillings, three pence, or three shillings, sixpence. Other work is now priced at two shillings, and two shillings, three pence, which was formerly priced at four shillings, and four shillings, three pence. The reduction in wage seems to have been carried to a greater extent than is necessary for increasing demand. Indeed, the reduction in the cost of weaving, in the case of many descriptions of ribbons, has not been accompanied by any corresponding reduction in the selling price of the manufactured article. Mr. F. D. Long's Report, Children's Employment Commission, 5th Reprint, 1866, page 114, end note. 
A necessary condition, therefore, to the growth of the number of factory hands is a proportionally much more rapid growth of the amount of capital invested in mills. This growth, however, is conditioned by the ebb and flow of the industrial cycle. It is, besides, constantly interrupted by the technical progress that at one time virtually supplies the place of new workmen, and another actually displaces old ones. This qualitative change in the mechanical industry continually discharges hands from the factory, or shuts its doors against the fresh stream of recruits, while the purely quantitative extension of the factories absorbs not only the men thrown out of work, but also fresh contingents. The workpeople are thus continually both repelled and attracted, hustled from pillar to post, while at the same time constant changes take place in the sex, age, and skill of the levies. The lot of the factory operatives will be best depicted by taking a rapid survey of the course of the English cotton industry. From 1770 to 1815 this trade was depressed or stagnant for five years only. During this period of forty-five years the English manufacturers had a monopoly of machinery and of the markets of the world. From 1815 to 1821 depression, and 1822 to 1823 prosperity, 1824 abolition of the laws against trades unions, great extension of factories everywhere, 1825 crisis, 1826 great misery and riots among the factory operatives, 1827 slight improvement, 1828 great increase in power looms and in exports 1829 exports especially to india surpass all former years 1830 glutted markets great distress 1831 to 1833 continued depression the monopoly of the trade with india and china withdrawn from the east india company 1834 great increase of factories and machinery shortness of hands the new poor law furthers the migration of agricultural laborers into the factory districts. The country districts swept of children. White slave trade. 1835 great prosperity. Contemporaneous starvation of the handloom weavers. 1836 great prosperity. 1837 and 1838 depression and crisis. 1839 revival. 1840 great depression, riots, calling out of the military. 1841 and 1842, frightful suffering among the factory operatives. 1842, the manufacturers locked the hands out of the factories in order to enforce the repeal of the corn laws. The operatives stream in thousands into the towns of Lancashire and Yorkshire, are driven back by the military, and their leaders are brought to trial at Lancaster. 1843, great misery. 1844, revival. 1845, great prosperity. 1846, continued improvement at first, then reaction. Repeal of the Corn Laws, 1847, crisis, general reduction of wages by ten and more percent, in honor of the Big Loaf, 1848, continued depression, Manchester under military protection, 1849, revival, 1850, prosperity, 1851, falling prices, low wages, frequent strikes, 1852, improvement begins, strikes continue, the manufacturers threaten to import foreign hands, 1853, increasing exports, strike for eight months, and great misery at Preston, 1854, prosperity, glutted markets, 1855, news of failures stream in from the United States, Canada, and the Eastern markets, 1856, great prosperity, 1857, crisis, 1858, improvement, 1859, great prosperity, increase in factories, 1860, zenith of the English cotton trade, the Indian, Australian, and other markets so glutted with goods 
that even in 1863 that had not absorbed the whole lot, the French Treaty of Commerce, enormous growth of factories and machinery, 1861, prosperity continues for a time, reaction, the American Civil War, cotton famine, 1862 to 1863, complete collapse. The history of the cotton famine is too characteristic to dispense with dwelling upon it for a moment. From the indications as to the conditions of the markets of the world in 1860 and 1861, we see that the cotton famine came in the nick of time for the manufacturers, and was, to some extent, advantageous to them, a fact that was acknowledged in the reports of the Manchester Chamber of Commerce, proclaimed in Parliament by Palmerston and Derby, and confirmed by events. Footnote. Reports of Inspectors of Factories, 31st October, 1862, page 30, end note. No doubt, among the 2,887 cotton mills in the United Kingdom in 1861, there were many of small size. According to the report of Mr. A. Redgrave, out of the 2,109 mills included in his district, 392, or 19%, employed less than 10 horsepower each, 345, or 16%, employed 10 horsepower, and less than 20 horsepower, while 1,000... 372 employed upwards of 20 horsepower. First see page 19. The majority of the small mills were weaving sheds, built during the period of prosperity after 1858, for the most part by speculators, of whom one supplied the yarn, another the machinery, a third the buildings, and were worked by men who had been overlookers, or by other persons of small means. These small manufacturers mostly went to the wall. The same fate would have overtaken them in the commercial crisis that was staved off only by the cotton famine. Although they formed one-third of the total number of manufacturers, yet their small mills absorbed a much smaller part of the capital invested in the cotton trade. As to the extent of the stoppage, it appears from authentic estimates that in October 1862, 60.3% of the spindles and 58% of the looms were standing. This refers to the cotton trade as a whole, and of course requires considerable modifications for individual districts. Only very few mills worked full-time, sixty hours a week. The remainder worked at intervals. Even in those few cases where full-time was worked, and at the customary rate of peace wage, the weekly wages of the operatives necessarily shrank, owing to good cotton being replaced by bad, sea island by Egyptian in fine spinning mills, American and Egyptian by Surat, and pure cotton by mixings of waste and Surat. The shorter fiber of the Surat cotton and its dirty condition, the greater fragility of the thread, and the substitution of all sorts of heavy ingredients for flour in sizing the warps, all these lessened the speed of the machinery, or the number of looms that could be superintended by one weaver, increased the labor caused by defects in the machinery, and reduced the peace wage by reducing the mast of the product turned off. Where Surat cotton was used, the loss to the operatives when on full time amounted to twenty, thirty, and more per cent. But besides this, the majority of manufacturers reduced the rate of peace wage by five, seven and a half, and ten per cent. We can, therefore, conceive of the situation of those hands who were employed for only three, three and a half, or four days a week, or for only six hours a day. Even in 1863, after a comparative improvement had set in, the weekly wages of spinners and weavers were three shillings fourpence, three shillings tenpence, and four shillings sixpence, and five shillings one pence. Footnote. Report of the Inspector of Factories, 
31st October, 1863, pages 41 through 45, end note. Even in this miserable state of things, however, the inventive spirit of the master never stood still, but was exercised in making deductions from wages. These were to some extent inflicted as a penalty for defects in the finished article that were really due to his bad cotton and his unsuitable machinery. Moreover, where the manufacturer owned the cottages of the workpeople, he paid himself his rents by deducting the amount from these miserable wages. Mr. Redgrave tells us of self-acting minders, operatives who manage a pair of self-acting mules, earning at the end of a fortnight's full work eight shillings eleven pence, and that from this sum was deducted the rent of his house, the manufacturer, however, returning half the rent as a gift. The minders took away the sum of six shillings eleven pence. In many places the self-acting minders ranged from five shillings to nine shillings per week, and the weavers from two shillings to six shillings per week, during the latter part of 1862. Footnote. Pages 41 through 42. End note. Even when working short time the rent was frequently deducted from the wages of the operatives. Same. Page 57. No wonder that in some parts of Lancashire a kind of famine fever broke out but more characteristic than all this was the revolution that took place in the process of production at the expense of the workpeople. Experimentia incorpora vili, like those of anatomists on frogs, were formerly made. Although, says Mr. Redgrave, I have given the actual earnings of the operatives in several mills, it does not follow that they earn the same amount week by week. The operatives are subject to great fluctuations from the constant experimentalizing of the manufacturers. The earnings of the operatives rise and fall with the quality of the cotton mixings. Sometimes they have been within fifteen per cent of former earnings, and then, in a week or two, they have fallen off from fifty to sixty per cent. Pages fifty through fifty-one, end note. These experiments were not made solely at the expense of the workman's means of subsistence. His five senses also had to pay the penalty. The people who are employed in making up Surat cotton complain very much. They inform me, on opening the bales of cotton, there is an intolerable smell, which causes sickness. In the mixing, scrubbing, and carding rooms, the dust and dirt which are disentangled irritate the air passages, and give rise to cough and difficulty of breathing. A disease of the skin, no doubt from the irritation of the dirt contained in the Surat cotton, also prevails. The fiber being so short, a great amount of size, both animal and vegetable, is used. Bronchitis is more prevalent owing to the dust. Inflammatory sore throat is common from the same cause. Sickness and dyspepsia are produced by the frequent breaking of the weft when the weaver sucks the weft through the eye of the shuttle. On the other hand, the substitutes for flour were a fortunatus's purse to the manufacturers by increasing the weight of the yarn. They caused fifteen pounds of raw material to weigh twenty-six pounds after it was woven. Pages 62 to 63. In the report of factories for 30th April, 1864, we read as follows. The trade is availing itself of this resource at present to an extent which is even discreditable. I have heard in good authority of a cloth weighing eight pounds, which was made of five and one-quarter pounds cotton, and two and three-quarter pounds size, and of another cloth weighing five and a quarter pounds, of which two pounds was size. These were ordinary export shirtings. In cloths of other descriptions, as much as fifty per cent size is sometimes added, 
so that a manufacturer may, and does truly boast, that he is getting rich by selling cloth for less money per pound than he paid for the mere yarn of which they are composed. 30th April, 1864, page 27. But the workpeople had to suffer, not only from the experiments of the manufacturers inside the mills, and of the municipalities outside, not only from reduced wages and absence of work, from want and from charity, and from the eulogistic speeches of lords and commons. Unfortunate females who, in consequence of the cotton famine, were at its commencement thrown out of employment, and have thereby become outcasts of society, and now, though trade has revived, and work is plentiful, continue members of that unfortunate class, and are likely to continue so. There are also in the borough more youthful prostitutes than I have known for the last twenty-five years. Footnote. From a letter of Mr. Harris, Chief Constable of Bolton, in Reports of Inspectors of Factories, 31st October, 1865, pages 61 through 62. End note. We find, then, in the first forty-five years of the English cotton trade, from 1770 to 1815, only five years of crisis and stagnation, but this was the period of monopoly. The second period, from 1815 to 1863, counts, during its forty-eight years, only twenty years of revival and prosperity against twenty-eight of depression and stagnation. Between 1815 and 1830, the competition with the continent of Europe and with the United States sets in. After 1833, the extension of the Asiatic markets is enforced by destruction of the human race, the wholesale extinction of Indian handloom weavers. After the repeal of the Corn Laws, from 1846 to 1863, there are eight years of moderate activity and prosperity against nine years of depression and stagnation. The condition of the adult male operatives, even during the years of prosperity, may be judged from the notes subjoined. Footnote in an appeal dated 1863 of the factory operatives of Lancashire, etc., for the purpose of forming a society for organized immigration, we find the following. That a large immigration of factory workers is now absolutely essential to raise them from their present prostrate condition, few will deny, but to show that a continuous stream of emigration is at all times demanded, and without which it is impossible for them to maintain their position in ordinary times, we beg to call attention to the subjoined facts. In 1814, the official value of cotton goods exported was 17,665,378 pounds, whilst the real marketable value was 20,070,824 pounds. In 1858, the official value of cotton goods exported was 182,221,681 pounds, but the real or marketable value was only forty-three million, one thousand, three hundred twenty-two pounds, being a tenfold quantity sold for little more than double the former price. To produce results so disadvantageous to the country generally, and to the factory workers in particular, several causes have cooperated, which, had circumstances permitted, we should have brought more prominently under your notice. Suffice it for the present to say that the most obvious one is the constant redundancy of labor, without which a trade so ruinous in its effects never could have been carried on, and which requires a constantly extending market to save it from annihilation. Our cotton mills may be brought to a stand by the periodical stagnations of trade, which, under present arrangements, are as inevitable as death itself, but the human mind is constantly at work, 
and although we believe we are under the mark in stating that six millions of persons have left these shores during the last twenty-five years, yet from the natural increase of population, and the displacement of labor to cheapen production, a large percentage of the male adults in the most prosperous times find it impossible to obtain work in factories on any conditions whatever. Reports of Inspectors of Factories, 30 April 1863, pages 51 through 52. We shall, in a later chapter, see how our friends, the manufacturers, endeavored during the catastrophe in the cotton trade to prevent by every means, including state interference, the emigration of the operatives. End note. End part four, chapter fifteen, section seven.